When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, June 26th, 2023. On the show today, news, a great batch of listener questions. And in surveys, Disney wants to know if you like Tron more at night. Then in our main segment, Jim gives us the surprising history of the Walt Disney World Speedway, which started construction this week in 1995. Let's get started by bringing in the man who kind of wishes Dolly Parton sang 10 to 3 instead. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? <laughs> Dolly Parton, I, I, a national treasure if we ever had one. Are you familiar with her Imagination Library program? Oh, yeah. She gives uh, gives books to kids. Yeah, they're up to, at this point, 200 million books given away to kids under the age of five. Amazing. I've been meaning to get down to Dollywood forever. I remember back in 1986 when they announced they were going to rebrand uh, Silver Dollar City uh, mm -hmm. around Ms. Parton. And this December, finally, my I, my sister and I are going to go down there. Are you going in December? Yeah. Let me know the dates. Okay. Okay. This, is, this will be better than the time we visited uh, the Holy Land. The Holy Land experience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe you meant to say Holy Land USA. Yeah, we, we didn't go to, we haven't, we haven't been to Israel yet. <laughs> no, we have not. On the other hand, our, our buddy BioReconstruct did a recent flyover. I saw. And, it's it, they flattened it. Yeah. There's no going back now, Len. So. That's true, that's true. Mm -hmm. All right, well, let me know your dates. I would uh, love to go to Dollywood. Oh, that'd be cool. I'll let you know. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Spencer Eaches, Katie Mercer, Meg Legband817, and Robert Worf. And longtime subscribers, Chad Ryan, Patrick Watts, Kristen Helmstetter, and Super Jess. Jim, these are the Disney cast members working to repair the Miss Tilly, the boat stuck on Mount Mayday in Disney's Typhoon Lagoon Water Park. They say that between the boat's excellent repair manuals and the DIY French maritime documentary Les Joyeux Naufragés, they expect to have Miss Tilly Seaworthy again by the end of the year. True story. This is where my high school French would fail me. <laughs> you know what what, it, what did, does this word mean? La wrench. I'm totally confused. So, so the, uh, the French maritime documentary is better known in the U.S. as Gilligan's Island. Ah, uh, <laughs> well... Okay. At least they're going to get that coconut radio going. Exactly. You know, that's all that matters. Exactly. Okay. You know. All right. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, light news week this week, but our friends at mm. WDW Magic are reporting that Epcot's Journey of Water, inspired by Moana, has begun testing. Uh, as a reminder, it's scheduled to open in the fall of 2023. Jim, do you think that uh, there's a little bit of urgency now for Disney to get this open, given what we're seeing with attendance numbers in uh, in summer? Yeah, but at the same time, Len, you know, I mean, <laughs> honey, your journey of water's open. Get get some plane tickets. I, I mean, yes, yeah. it would be something new to do if you're already going to Epcot. But I would argue 
this isn't even going to make people go out of their way to go to Epcot. <laughs> it's not going to make people in World Celebration walk all the way over to, to World Nature. <laughs> no, no. I don't know. No. I mean, it's 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 good that they've got something, but oof, it's going to be a long stretch after this. It is. It is. Uh. All right. Speaking of uh, new things, though, in surveys, our friend Jeff Clune sent in a Magic Kingdom survey with this new question. Did you ride Tron Light Cycle Run during the daytime or nighttime when you visited? So my question, Jim, is why? Why does, why does Disney care? Every year, Disney adjusts its marketing approach, what it's putting in its ads mm-hmm. that it's putting out for the resort and that sort of thing. And I think this is just one of these things where it's like they love Tron at night. They love how it looks at night. That's the image that should go into the ad. Oh, it's for advertising. We're going to show it at night. So you uh, you ask whether you rode it day or night and then how you liked it and then go from there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. good one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeff also mentioned that uh, in the same survey, he got a, uh, a question that asked him to describe a bunch of Magic Kingdom attractions using the mm-hmm. following terms. Uh, and the terms are iconic, personal favorite, immersive, boring, dated, insensitive, or I'm not familiar with it. And that uh, Jeff said that uh, what's interesting is that he rated several attractions as boring, but at the Mm -hmm. end of that series of questions, it only asked him why Winnie the Pooh was rated as boring. And uh, Jeff said, it makes me feel like they took rating Pooh as boring as personally offensive to them, and I felt guilty afterwards. I have to expect (laughs) Pooh and Tigger to hunt me down next time I'm in the park and smack me across the back of the head. If we're talking about the IPs that make a ridiculous amount of money for the Walt Disney Company, Mm -hmm. Pooh is right up there. In fact, for a time back in the the late 80s, early 90s, Pooh was selling more merch than, than Mickey. And so... Why that one would raise a red flag? That why did you think it was boring? You know, wait a minute, that's our money maker. What do you mean you think it's boring? Exactly. They want additional info because God help them if poo revenue starts to fall off. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be bad. I actually have some some insight into why they only asked about one attraction though, and I think it's uh, to keep the survey short. Ah. So okay. one of the things that so we've just recently finished redoing the mm-hmm. survey at touringplans.com. And one of the things that we wanted to do was ask you why you liked or didn't like certain things. Like, you know, if you rated an attraction very high or a mm-hmm. restaurant very high, you know, or low, we mm-hmm. want to ask you why, you know, what specific thing you liked or didn't like about that, that made you rate the thing the way you did. But imagine, you know, you're at Walt Disney World for a week you, you mm-hmm. go on like 40 attractions, you eat at 10 restaurants. We don't want to ask you that mm-hmm. question for every one of those things because you'd stop mm-hmm. answering them. So what we end up doing is picking some of them at random and saying, mm-hmm. hey, you described this thing as this. Why did you give it that rating? And we only do it for a couple. But you know, on average over time, like for us where we get seventy or 80,000 people filling out a you know, survey, you will get mm-hmm. enough answers for each restaurant and each attraction to get a, a valid sample. So I think it's to keep the, the, the survey short. Great insight there. Spent a lot of time on that one. All right. <laughs> on, on to listener okay. questions uh, from Victoria mm-hmm. Liptrot. I'm in the UK and I was curious if you've heard much about the Disneyland Paris cast member strikes and the impact it's having on the resorts. I'd be really interested to hear your take on it. So Jim, uh, our, our own Guy Selga is recently back from Disneyland Paris and he had some experiences with this, but have you heard anything about this? From the moment... 
that the Euro Disneyland Resort was announced and, and what was it? Michael Eisner stepped outside of the signing with Mitterrand and got pelted with, with tomatoes and eggs. You yeah. know, it was just sort of like, look, you know, the, France has got a France. Yeah. You know, this is what they do. I mean, I want to say for the opening day of resort, you know, weren't the farmers in the area, didn't they block the highway and sit with fire to like hay yeah. bales or yeah. so this is kind of what they do over there if they're having a job action they're going to march in the park and stuff that you couldn't do stateside it's just sort of like no this is france we can do that we yeah. are going to be vocal about this and and that's what they're doing yeah i, I kind of feel like you haven't been to france if you haven't seen a labor action that's it exactly. But a uh, guy was there and he said the interesting thing was that the labor action was happening in the park. Like there were cast members yeah. on strike in the park, which is really interesting to me. Like it's a different aspect of French labor law than here in the U.S. Like in the U.S., yeah. striking cast members would probably not be allowed into a Disney park to stage oh, no. that strike. But in France, no, they're like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. you work there. Go ahead. Thank you, Union. Oh, you're welcome. So, so I guess if you go, you will see, you know, on occasion, uh, striking cast members in the parks. Mm -hmm. But again, okay. it's, uh, I don't want to quote Beauty and the Beast, but after all, this is mm -hmm. France. There right. we go. Mm -hmm. All right. From Carly. Uh, and this is in response to uh, the announcements we had last week around the uh, hard ticket events for winter. And Carly writes mm -hmm. in and says, with the recent announcements, I'm getting hard ticket event fatigue. I'm curious about your thoughts on the following. Who are they targeting to attend these events? Mm -hmm. We've attended two Christmas parties in the past. So who are they targeting, Jim? Kind of interesting. Mr. Shrule and I were, were talking about this just recently, about you know, how Disneyland is a regional park, where Walt Disney yeah. World still is that place where, for a lot of families, it's that once-in-a-lifetime thing. So yep. the whole notion of... You're there, and it's like, oh, I mean, I'm glad you're enjoying the parks, but have you heard about this after-hours thing we're doing? There's less resistance to this idea. We're only doing this once, so sure, let's spring for uh, Jollywood nights, you know, that sort of thing. So, again, I, I think in a lot of cases, it's for those folks. It's like fear of missing out. So Right. And the, uh, the Halloween and Christmas parties are super popular, both with they locals are. and they with, are. Uh, with visitors. Yeah. Carly's other question, do you feel it dilutes the value of the daily base offerings? Can we no longer get some extra seasonal stuff to drive attendance that doesn't have an upcharge? I think those days are long gone, Carly. Mm. But uh, does it dilute the value of the daily base offerings? For the Halloween event, it might, because I'd like mm -hmm. to see a, uh, you know, a Halloween, the Halloween parade you know, at night, mm -hmm. but for the general public. But I think for Christmas, most mm -hmm. of the holiday stuff is actually available during the week of Christmas that's in the, uh, that's in the Christmas event, right? Yeah, yeah. But again, the downside of that is you are in the kingdom. What's the typical attendance during the, the Christmas week? I mean, it, it's... Yeah, it's bonkers. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And then uh, does the actual number of hours of, of available park time play into the price of the ticket? And shouldn't it? You've talked about this for a while, where the, the hard ticket events are basically a way of selling the same park twice in a day. Oh, Yeah. And um, before the pandemic, it was as much as three times a day. Remember the uh, thing they, they tested in the Magic Kingdom where Fantasyland would be open? Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, you so they, they used to sell the same park three times in a day. Now it's just twice. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by that moment when for a Halloween event or a Christmas event, where is it? They'll start loading people into the park for the nighttime event. Yeah, late, late afternoon, yeah. Yeah, and it just, you know, the whole notion that if you're, you're, you're fairly canny about it, 
you know, you can get another an additional two and three hours worth of park time as you show up right as they're loading, right. you know, begin yeah, right to load people four in for the whatever, party. Yeah. 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 So super interesting. All right. Mm-hmm. I got, we got a, a really great spreadsheet from listener Chris Ripley. He says, mm-hmm. I've been running the TEA figures. We talked about uh, theme park attendance last week. I've been running mm-hmm. the TEA figures since 2011, and Disney's been steadily losing market share to Universal on an average of 2.7% per year with COVID years included, or 0.73% per year otherwise. Disney probably doesn't mind this as they seem to be obsessed with revenue, so fewer guests who spend more fit into their strategy. However, this mm-hmm. can't be a great long-term policy as even high rollers will surely be put off by a lack of investment or repeat experiences. And if you look mm-hmm. at the numbers, Chris mm-hmm. is projecting out that by the year 2029, Universal will actually have more attendance than Disney World at the same at the, at the current level of, uh, of change. And hmm. Jim, 2029 is a lot sooner than people think. Yeah, it it is. It is. And in fact, I'm sure you've been watching this past week, the food and retail component of the Minion Land oh, yeah. uh, is taking coming shape, yeah. online. Yeah. And Comcast has turned to the Universal Parks and said, RIP, start using it. Yeah. In fact, it won't be too long now before we find out What's being put into the old Woody Woodpecker Fifold Playland area, which I keep hearing over and over again, is it, that's the DreamWorks section of the yeah. park. And kind of a one-two punch of a Minions land and a DreamWorks land for a lot of little kids. To, to some mommy and daddy, I want to go visit the Minions. That's yeah, a great strategy. Yeah, and, and Chris's numbers don't include the projected mm-hmm. opening of Epic Universe, which is only going to accelerate the number of people yeah. who go to, to Universal Parks. Yeah. It's not like people are like, oh, we got to go to the Disney parks. They've got those elemental characters. <laughs> oh, yeah. We texted about this uh, during the week. What happened? So yeah. Pixar is, uh, Pixar's latest movie is elemental. And uh, when the, on Monday I opened up my web browser to see a great deal of consternation from media analysts because uh, elemental apparently is the weakest box office opening for any Pixar movie ever. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I mean, mind you, if you adjust the original Toy Story from from ninety five, you know, for two thousand twenty three dollars, mm-hmm. the weird part of it is, is there's a disconnect. And yes, that's what the box office says. If you go for the audience score over at Rotten Tomatoes, yeah, it's in the high nineties. People who actually went to go see this movie in theaters enjoyed it, but how many of the most recent Pixar films, because of the pandemic? debuted on Disney Plus. Right. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a there's a theory that that devalued the brand. More to the point, you taught the audience that if they wait 6 to 8 weeks, it'll be on Disney Plus. Oh yeah, good point, yeah. It's not that people don't value Pixar films. They're just like, "Look, I'm busy." Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff in theaters right now. And yeah. I also know, look, you taught me. In six to eight weeks, I can sit in the comfort of my own home right. and watch this very same film. And it's a couple. there are a couple of other things in this too, right? This is a brand new franchise for Pixar. And it's yeah. not an event opening that yeah. would require people to go to the theaters. Like, like I've been telling Laurel for months mm-hmm. that our date night on June 30th is we're gonna go see Indiana Jones. Like I will, mm-hmm. like I will buy you all of the milk duds you want, and we will. We're gonna go to a theater and watch mm-hmm. this movie. And I don't think anyone thought the same thing of you know whatever Pixar's latest movie is. I want to see well, Indiana Jones in theaters 
on a big screen with very loud music. So interesting, we just talked about animated features. Very same day, Len, as counter-programming, DreamWorks is putting out its next animated feature. What is it? Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken. And uh, by the way, ads <laughs> make it look charming. Looks like a lot of fun. It's, it's kind of a riff on Disney's Little Mermaid. But here's the thing. If you thought the box office elemental was low, the current projections for Ruby Gilman are for the its entire opening weekend because Dial of Destiny is going to blot out the sun. Sure. $8 million total. I mean, Eight, you know. Yeah. $8 million isn't even a very good Powerball lottery. Uh, no, days. no. Uh, so, $8 million, I, dollars I wouldn't even play. Like, eh, whatever. Uh, what am I going to do with that? But, I, <laughs> but again, I just feel bad because it's just a lot of people worked on that film. They yeah. wanted people to see it in theaters. And, and again, six weeks later, yeah, could it's going to well be... Streaming. Yeah, Paramount Plus or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it exactly. Yeah. So. All right, uh, next question from Todd. He says, my wife and I were looking at the current Disney discounted prices for the upcoming holiday season. This is for hotels. To the mm -hmm. best of her memory... The current hotel prices are what the rack rates were prior to 2022. I'm looking for old receipts because we spent a lot of time in the Disney hotels from 2018 to 2022. I don't know if you have any information on the rack rates before the post-pandemic inflation. I'm just mm -hmm. curious. All right. So I went back and looked at this, actually. So the um, we talked a couple of weeks ago, Jim, about the current discounts for Christmas in Walt mm -hmm. Disney World being anywhere from 30 to 40%. And in spot checking you know, various hotels in Walt Disney World... It looks like the current room discounts will bring things back to somewhere between 2019 and 2020 in terms of prices. So not oh. super low, but no. we're, we're basically undoing the last three or four years of price hikes. If you want to talk about playing into the narrative that it's too expensive to go to Walt Disney World, it's like, yes, we've discounted it. It's now down to what you paid three years ago. Yeah, 2019. Like, uh, yeah. It's not, and that's not a historically a great discount. There were... There no, were times no. that we've seen, it was, we had seen spots of slow times before where mm -hmm. you could get like pop century rooms on hot wire for basically 2003 prices. And we've talked about mm -hmm. this on the show. Like I think, you know, an, an historically low price is, you know, something that you haven't seen in 20 years. This is something you haven't seen in three or four. But by the way, Jim, have you heard that, uh, uh, speaking of hotels, Disney's uh, considering testing uh, hot wire deals again? Ooh. To sell rooms? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That canary in the coal mine is, well, you, is it looking like the, 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 the canary the canary's losing feathers. <laughs> and, and it's funny that you mention this because uh, Chrissy was uh in Walt Disney World the last couple of days mm -hmm. staying at Beach yep. Club and one of the things that she said she got was um she got this notice on my Disney experience that mm -hmm. said, you know, are you interested in a dining reservation for tonight? You know, click here. And she opened it up and Almost every on-site restaurant had availability that night for dinner in Walt Disney World. Like, oh, you want to get to be our guest? Come on in. How's six? Is six good? Yeah. Oh. And, and we're in, you know, I mean, this we're sort of like in the tail end of peak summer vacation mm -hmm. season right now. You know, we're still in, the, in the, the third week of June. But still, to have, to have MDE pushing out alerts saying, <laughs> tons of availability in dining tonight. Yeah, wow. not great. Wow, that was a great get for, for Chrissy. Yeah. Holy cow, that's news. Yeah, yeah. All right, last question uh, from Julia. Oh, you're going to love this, Jim. And uh, mm -hmm. let me preface this by saying I'm only putting this email in because I mm -hmm. have done this before. All right. Okay. 
So Julia writes in and says, my friend and I, both female and in our early 30s, are headed to Walt Disney World for a few days in August. On our last day, we're planning to do the Magic Kingdom, Tron, and then have dinner reservations at Citrico's. Given that it'll be August, we're expecting to get sweaty and gross in the parks, so we'll need to freshen up and change clothes for dinner, especially since Citrico's has a dress code. We're staying at Caribbean Beach, so going back to the room is not time efficient. Do you have any suggestions for where we could freshen up for dinner in the Magic Kingdom or at the Grand Floridian? Oh, this I have right. to hear. Right. Okay. Let me preface this by saying there's rule breaking, Jim, and then there's rule breaking, right? Okay. This mm-hmm. is it's it's sort of like uh this is the Catholic Church like uh, differentiate between like mortal <laughs> sins and and other sins. Like, you know, this is not a mortal <laughs> sin. It's what I'm about to say okay. here. I realize okay. it's breaking the rules. Mm-hmm. But there are breaking the rules where you you know you put people in harm and you could go to jail. Mm-hmm. And then there are times where you break the rules. And the the only real impact is you have a great story to tell twenty years from now. Okay. Keep this in mind. And again, I've, we've all we've all done this. All right. Mm-hmm. So there have been times, Julia, when mm-hmm. I was living in North Carolina and doing Disney research, and we did basically what you are describing. We would stay in the Magic Kingdom all day, and then you know prepare to hop in the car for a ten hour drive home. So that, you know over, through the middle of the night so that we could be at work on Monday morning. Mm -hmm. And rather than be gross after Mm -hmm. being in the parks in the Magic Kingdom for 10 hours, I have popped into the Polynesian pool, taken a quick dip, changed clothes, and then got in the car. Was I staying at the Polynesian? No. Breaking the rules? Yes, definitely breaking Mm -hmm. the rules. 100%, I admit it. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's great harm in, let's say, availing yourself of the Grand Floridian pool. Uh, so maybe you bring a backup pair of clothes and a, uh, a bathing suit in whatever you're carrying throughout the day. And, you know, wait for the door to open at the Grand Floridian pool, pop in real quick, change there, and then go to dinner at Citrico's. Again, okay. I've, I've done this before. But, uh, Jim, am I, am I missing uh, another idea here? I would take a much higher level of gross than you would, Len. Uh, <laughs> I would right. actually, if, you know, I would stay in the Magic Kingdom, I would hop on the uh, the boat over to Fort Wilderness, and then take the eternal transportation to the oh, very to first a comfort campground. station. There oh. we go. So, so you could not just jump in the pool, and you could take an actual shower oh, and, and shave Jim. and change your clothes. And I'm a much higher level of yeah. Than you've, you you've, are you've thought about this more than I have. This is, this I, is I have. We make I, a great I, team. There we go. Yes, that is a great idea and doesn't involve too much rule breaking. No, no, no. Beautiful. Definitely allow some time for that, though, Julie. That's getting over to Fort Wilderness is is relatively straightforward. It's the getting Mm -hmm. from Fort Wilderness to Grand Floridian, where you've got to take the internal bus system back to the the check-in. Yeah. There we go. And then over from there. All right, cool. But you have a couple Mm -hmm. of options, Julia. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I would definitely do Fort Wilderness. Good job, Jim. Okay. Yeah, I try. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim's going to come at us like a spider monkey. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. All right, Jim, when you proposed doing the Walt Disney World Speedway as a feature story, I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, we haven't really talked about this as much, but there's a lot of really interesting history here and a, an attempt yeah. at Disney to sort of expand their market beyond the usual set of sports. Well, yeah, and the reason this this sort of came on my radar is, uh, remember, I, I want to say this was after our Galactic Star Cruiser event. We, you and I attempted to walk from the TTC all the way to the Magic Kingdom on, yeah. on the, the, only to get tripped up by the construction at the Grand Yeah, Flow. this was uh, April, yeah. April, there we go. But as I was driving over to the Poly to meet you, uh, took that new flyover that connects World Drive the Floridian Way. Right. This is, the, this is the second of the new flyovers. This one's brand new, open yeah, this year. Yeah. You go, if mm-hmm. you want to go to the Poly now, you no longer mm-hmm. go straight past the Magic Kingdom ticket booths and make a left. Mm-hmm. You actually veer to the left, you and do? then you eventually make a right on that street mm-hmm. to get to the Poly. But what's kind of cool about it is that there's a moment where you're elevated and you can sort of look down into the Magic Kingdom parking lot. And for a moment, it's like, oh, that was where the Speedway was. Yep. Existed for a relatively short window of time. Yep. It opened in 95 and by 2015, they were pulling the thing down. But by then, it had long since stopped being a place where races were held and it was mostly... The Richard Petty driving experience, right? which you did, right? Or? I did. I got yelled at uh, by a, a set of mechanics saying, if you continue to ride the clutch like that, we're going to be here all night rebuilding this thing. So don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I paid for this clutch. <laughs> there we go. I forget which media event they took us over there and treated us to the Richard Petty driving experience. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Len... It was a, a genuine Winnie the Pooh moment when I had to climb in that window to get into yeah, the driver's are, seat. Those are small people, yeah. Yeah, well. I actually, actually did IndyCar. I didn't do Richard. Uh, I did the IndyCar experience there, but I didn't do Richard Petty. But yeah, same idea. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway, what was interesting about this one mile long three-turn tri-oval track that was built there, it was known affectionately as the Mickyard, and that was supposed to tie it back to the Brickyard, which is the two-and-a-half-mile-long track that listeners probably know better is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, which sure. was where the Indy 500 held every every May. In fact, the 107th running was held just four weeks ago. By the way, the Indy 500 plays a crucial role in the creation of the Walt Disney World Speedway in Orlando. In fact, the seed for the $6 million project was planted just eight months after Michael Eisner first became CEO of the Disney company. And Disney, out of the 10 studios in Hollywood uh, that are, are making film and television, they're dead last. Yeah, they're, they're 11th somehow in a field of 10. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, it's like, I, I don't know how we're doing that, but we're yeah. 11th. So, yes, it, it's crucial to get the characters out as much as they can. And so uh, Eisner cuts a deal with the Indy 500 people to have the Indy 500 Festival, which is this thing that's held around the launch of the virtual race, he has a, uh, cuts a deal. So it, that year, the 1985, mm-hmm. for the 70th running of the Indy 500, they're going to, to theme the Indy Fest, the wonderful world of Disney. So Wow. Okay, that's a that, there's a lot of people that go to uh, the Indy 500. Oh, yeah. Well, no, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, this is, this is I, they're telling the story. All right, so Jeffrey Katzenberg and I fly out to Indianapolis in 85 to attend that year's Indy 500. So we're sitting in the stands 
with 500,000 yeah. people. Yeah. And there's this parade that's held inside of the Speedway before the official start of the race where cars with celebrities and politicians roll by. So first the governor of Indiana goes by and there's polite applause. And then, then the car with Mickey Mouse goes by and, and there's more, right. yeah, yeah. more applause from the crowd. But the, which makes me feel good about the Disney characters. And the, but then Jim Varney goes by in a car dressed as Ernest. <laughs> go ahead. All right. And 500,000 people go berserk. Half a million people right? lose their mind. Yeah. All right. And, all right. So I, this is what Isaac turns to Jeffrey too. Katzenberg and says, yeah, we should probably do something about that. Okay. But I mean, there's, there's a difference between we should do something about half a million people mm -hmm. loving uh, Jim Varney. And let's yep. build a uh, racetrack in, in Florida. But see, that's the thing. What impressed Eisner is, again, 500,000 people yeah, you know, yeah. coming to this racetrack. It, and so, it's a very large sample size. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and remember, when Michael had, you know, uh, what had tipped the scale they had Michael the job at Disney was that the Bass Brothers, those billionaire Texas investors, got behind him. Yeah. But when he got the job, they turned to him and said, look, priority number one is developing Walt Disney World. You've got 40 square miles of property, and we got to find new ways for the company to profit off of this property. And Eisner, mm -hmm. the guy loves sports. I oh, mean, yeah. what was it? We got the Mighty Ducks of Anaheim in 93. Yeah. And that was an expansion team, right? They they made that team, yeah. They did. They yeah. did. Uh, and I... I want to say, was it the Florida Panthers at the same time? That yeah. Oh, okay. Walt Disney World Marathon kicks off in 94. Mm. Very same year we get the All-Star Sports Resort at Walt Disney World. It buys ESPN in 95. Mm. That's part of the, the $19 billion deal to buy ABC Cap Cities. 96, Disney gets the G Gene Autry's family to sell them a chunk of the Los Angeles Angels. And over time... They completely buy the team and, and change them into the Anaheim Angels. And then in 97, I mean, we got the Disney's Wild World of Sports Complex, a 220-acre thing, eventually got rebranded as the ESPN Wild World of Sports in 2010. I, but that's a lot of sports-related stuff. It is, yeah. So Eisner first broaches the idea of building a racetrack somewhere on Disney property with the Imagineers in the mid uh, mid to late 80s. And <laughs> mind you, serious work is already underway on Disney MGM. So the thinking with the Imagineers is, let's finish Disney World's third gate first. Oh, right, yeah. And then we can circle back on this thing that the boss wants us to do that we've never, ever done before. But now it's a question of, okay, you want to build a racetrack. You have 40 square miles. Where do you put it? And so the Imaginers, as they do, they go off and they do research. They visit a number of speedways around the country. Hmm. They also watch the broadcasts that have been done to get a sense of, you know, all right. Camera kind of angles the, the, and whatnot, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's it, exactly. And what they realize is that for the two weeks leading up to the actual race uh, for the Indy 500, the Goodyear Blimp is flying back and forth over uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And since... And again, back to the Bass Brothers now, uh, who another, one of the other things they told Lydra is you have to do a better job of promoting Walt Disney World, where it's like, so oh, this okay, is yeah. Yeah. kind of the decision tree. So the managers think, okay, Michael wants us to build a racetrack in Florida. 
something that will lure guests to Walt mm-hmm. Disney World during those times of year when when attendance is soft. And w- what else can the blimp see while it's uh, shooting down at this? There we go. Yes. We have hotels. We have a theme park. You know, we Seven Seas Lagoon and Bay Lake. So where could we put this? So that's our background. Right. So at the at the time in at the time in the eighties, we've got two theme parks. We've got Epcot and the Magic Kingdom, and mm-hmm. Studios is planned. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Yeah, but but at the same time, it's one of these things where it's like, what do people think of when they think of Walt Disney World? And sure. so clearly the kingdom, clearly the, the monorail resorts, that sort of thing. And yeah. you have the 125 acres for the Magic Kingdom parking lot, already graded land. It was, it was hell. It was prepped back in the late 60s, early 70s. So it's not a question of you're going to build there and surprise, there's a sinkhole. Right. Well, plus they've already got the TTC right there to do to do other transportation. I mean, they've got a hub built in, and it's walking distance. Okay. Yeah. I, I remember, mm. once upon a time, there was a plan to build the Walt Disney World Showcase in the Magic right Kingdom there, parking yeah. lot for that very same reason, Len. So think about it. If you put the racetrack in the lower southwest corner of the Magic Kingdom parking lot, this is an area that only gets used when the park is at its absolute busiest. So we're talking 4th of July, Christmas, New Year's. Sure. So it's like, you put it there, and as the blimp flies overhead, shooting the race, they can't help but see, you know, Seven Seas Loon, Bay Lake. You know, it, it's it's a million dollars of advertising. Not only that, yeah. but but if you think about the, the hotels that are mm-hmm. on the Seven Seas Lagoon, they're some mm-hmm. of Disney's most iconic structures oh, yeah. the contemporary mm-hmm. nothing else looks yep. like that the polynesian mm-hmm. nothing else looks mm-hmm. like that the grand floridian mm-hmm. i mean outside of san diego nothing else looks like that right <laughs> <laughs> there we go there we go yeah so that's uh, i mean from a visual perspective that's where to put that okay all right and, and more to the point if you think about you've already got graded prepped land yeah. if you've already you got know, the parking lot you've already got the transportation yeah yeah that, that you are yeah. saving so much on traditional startup construction yeah. costs so Site survey work is done in secret September of 94 by Buena Vista Construction. Project is formally announced January 23rd, 1995, with the very first race to be held in this venue one year later. In fact, on January 27th, 1996, and, and that date was chosen for a very specific reason, Len, which we'll get to in a sec. Huh. Actual groundbreaking, uh, as you mentioned, began this week uh, back in 1995. In fact, Mary Holman George, she was the chairman of the board for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. She flies down to Walt Disney World to take part in the ceremony. In fact, she actually gives Walt Disney World officials uh, one of the original paving bricks that was used to create the brickyard oh, cool. back in 1909. All right. Was that checked luggage or did she put that in uh, in carry-on? <laughs> Two and a half pounds? I don't know, man. Or nine and a half pounds, yeah. Yeah, that could have been a, a challenge. Okay. So <laughs> after the groundbreaking, they put down 5,200 tons of asphalt to make the racing service. Uh, they pour 1,800 yards of concrete to make the outside walls of the racetrack. Uh, and then on top of that, to stop the occasional flying tire lint, mm-hmm. they put up 10 miles of safety restraining cabling. And then put a lot of effort into the pit row area. Oh, sure, there's and, safety stuff there too, yeah. But they did all of that during one of the soggiest summers on record in Orlando. Between the, 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 the months of June and July alone, 75 inches worth of rain fell. In two months, 75 inches of rain. I remember you talking once about 
when you were working on the guide, didn't you buy like a hundred years of of weather data from the Orlando Sentinel just yeah. to sort of have that? I was wondering if that sort of bumped out from the pile there, like, I, wow. I was probably there in the summer of 95, <laughs> 75 inches of huh? rain. I mean, I... Okay. Yeah. Do you remember doing the breaststroke a lot? Well, I remember, I remember one, I don't remember if it was 1995, but I remember at one point, like it being in the, in a torrential downpour mm-hmm. on the outside queue of Haunted Mansion. And right before it started raining, I was miserably hot. And mm-hmm. then it started raining and because I was, you know, I was kid back then mm-hmm. i stood in line in the rain while the rain came down and then at the end of it i, re- I remember going from like boiling hot to freezing yep. in the span of like 15 minutes to the point where i was like i was shivering in florida in july right the rest of the story has to deal with legionnaires disease right? <laughs> it must have been must have been anyway there we go all right so yeah so in the summer of 95 was wet but by october 18th of that year Last bit of paving is done on this one-mile track. In fact, they have the formal dedication. Uh, they, in fact, I've been looking for footage of this. Again, it was on November 28th, but evidently they literally had five indie racing legends to, to form a, a flying V on the track like AJ while Floyd fireworks. Too, yeah. So lots of publicity for, for this event. And, and so the question is, why? And the event that was going to be held in January, which was the inaugural Indy 200, what Disney and the folks who who ran the Indy Racing League were hoping was this televised debut Mm -hmm. of the Walt Disney World Speedway. It was something they carefully put together. In fact, again, we talked about them select deliberately selecting January 27th as the day for the debut race. And the reason they did that is that was the day before Super Bowl 30 was mm. staged in 1996. And a uh, little background here. Uh, Michael Eisner starts his career in television at 66. He was hired to be Barry Diller's assistant, who at that time was the uh, ABC's national programming director, sure. which meant Eisner had a front row seat when the very first uh, Super Bowl, uh, original Super Bowl, was broadcast in January of 67. And over the next two decades, he watched... As the Super Bowl, uh, you know, steadily grew in popularity till it, it became this broadcasting behemoth. So, yeah. Eisner knew from his personal experience that a televised sporting event, when properly positioned and promoted, could eventually become this enormous thing. And oh, yeah. and, and remember, Disney had just bought ABC Cap Cities earlier that same year, nineteen ninety five, for nineteen billion, and that included ABC Sports and ESPN. Yeah, so they they need content. They do. And the whole thing is like, man, if we do this right. Yeah. Well, first of all, they were positioning so the Indy 200 would then become the very first professional auto race of the year. Oh, right, because Daytona is uh, in February. There you go. Mm. All right. And But also, you know, the whole notion is if we set this up right, we have our raceway attached to a brand new television tradition. The, the race that sports fans watch the day before the Super Bowl. And that, that's kind of great because if you think about like football fans, mm-hmm. there are only two teams that play in the Super Bowl, which means, you know, 30 other teams fans have nothing to mm-hmm. do that yep. weekend. Right. Mm-hmm. So why not watch? I mean, you'll watch, you casually watch the Super Bowl. Yep. But if there's another sporting event that you could sort of get behind. And it's a race. Yeah, that's great. It's already a weekend where you know, people are thinking sports and yeah. they're killing time out ahead of the, you know, the start of Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, and the NBA, the NBA and the NHL are mm-hmm. playing, but 
it's sort of mid-season, right? They're not they're not into playoffs yet. Yeah. It is. You know, if it had worked, it would have been amazing. But sadly, all the ambitious plans that the mouse and the Indy Racing lead originally had for this corner of the Walt, you know, the Magic Kingdom parking lot, never came to fruition. And by January of two thousand, the Indy two hundred race was pretty much defunct. Wow. Uh, or at least as far as the Walt Disney World Speedway was concerned. And so... That's fast. <laughs> so how did this highly anticipated, seemingly can't-miss project wind up as the home of uh, then? What was the seriously underutilized Richard Petty driving experience, uh, which then, you know, the whole thing shuttered in 2015 and then got turned back into a parking lot. Well, Len and I will talk about that in depth in the second and final part of the story, which we'll share on next week's Disney Dish. The thing that amazes me about this story, Jim, is two things. Mm -hmm. One, if it had worked yep. and they were able to get all this publicity in January, January is also when most families plan their year's vacations. Oh, yeah. If they had got Walt Disney World in front of the right people early enough in January, that definitely mm -hmm. would have boosted attendance, not only you know for the for the race, but for later on mm -hmm. in the year. Yeah, I mean, uh, th there was so much uh, literally writing yeah. on this working, and and uh, when we get to this part of the story, the things that tripped it up, I right. mean, it just the the project got weirdly snake bit. And uh, but again, we'll we'll get into specifics next week. And the other so. thing that surprises me, and I'm, I'm I'm excited to hear about this next week, is if you think mm -hmm. about the period of like. 1995 to maybe like 2015 that was mm -hmm. like the two decades of explosive growth in nascar popularity and and how did disney miss out on all of that i know nascar mm -hmm. and indy are the same thing but explosive growth in racing right okay and it's just he misses anyway we'll uh, we'll we'll hear about it next week that we will all right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show and Jim Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. Also, we have an email now for tech support at Bandcamp, and that is support at Bandcamp.com. On next week's show, Jim continues the story of the Walt Disney World Speedway. While well, I suppress the urge to do the entire show as Ricky Bobby, in the meantime, lay off the peyote. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, LendedTouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will, of course, be playing his Martin D35 guitar, nicknamed Watermelon Moonshine, on the song Straight Up Sideways, live on stage with headliner Lainey Wilson on Sunday, July 30th at the Union County Fairgrounds just off Main Street in beautiful downtown Marysville, Ohio. While Aaron's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.